Hey, this is Jim, pastor of Decided Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope the sermon you're about to hear just blesses your heart and really encourages you. If you don't mind, subscribe. That way you'll get instant notifications every time a sermon is uploaded. And by all means, if you're feeling led to give, click on the giving link and there'll be more directions to follow. God bless. Enjoy the message. And you may be seated. Was that heavenly or what? Did you guys hear the angels singing along with us? It was so good. Thank you for singing out. I love to hear that. Um, and thank you to the Ott family. We've got Penny and David and Ron Ott. You know, they used to come here many moons ago. I, can't, I know you can't believe it, but we're that old around here that they used to come years ago when we were just, I think you guys might have even visited when we were in, at Crossroads. I'm not sure, but definitely when we were here, just about 20, 30 of us in this big old room and um, Ron's job moved him to Maryland, to Virginia, and now they're retired and living the dream in Simpsonville, right? But it is awesome to have you guys back joining us for a little bit. Uh, y'all make sure to say hi. They can tell you all of our, all kinds of stories about us from back in the day. So make sure to say hi to them and make them feel welcome. So good to see all of y'all. We got a Chick-fil-A row over here. I love to see that. You guys feeling okay? Glad to be off today. Amen, right? Well, we are in the middle of our Wonder Working Power series, verse by verse through Ephesians, chapters one and two. And today we begin two. We're beginning chapter two. And so if you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter two, that's where we'll be in just a moment. Uh, If you didn't bring your Bible, but you have your mobile device, go ahead and open that to Ephesians chapter two. We're going to read together in just a little bit. But a little story to get us started. Many of you know that I did not get the chance to go to seminary. I'm up here, you're listening to a guy that never got to go to seminary. Can you believe that? What in the world am I doing up here? Um, I did go to Bible college for about four and a half years. Don't ask me why, it was four and a half. Um, But I ended up dropping out. I couldn't even finish Bible college. I was a mess, I was confused, had a lot of stuff going on up here. So I ended up dropping out. I withdrew from college and took some time at home just to get right, get my mind right, get straight. Really, uh, the Lord helped me get straight, Um, literally, (laughs) LOL. Um, If you know a little bit about my testimony, you know that's so true. Um, But then I had the opportunity to apply to Newberry College. I needed to finish. I didn't have my bachelor's yet, so I at least wanted to have my bachelor's and outdo my sister who just got an associate's, right? So I needed to outdo my sister. I had to get the bachelor's, applied to Newberry College. Everything was going well. And I remember specifically one day I was in the administrator's office. There was a cubicle next to us and a girl about my age there trying to get into college. I'm over here trying to get in. And we're going over all the messy stuff like credit hours and transcripts and all that stuff. And the girl in the, in the office beside me, I remember vividly, the administrator with her saying, you're from this Bible college in Pensacola, Florida? And she said, yes. And she's like, I'm so sorry, but we can't, we can't take your credits. We can't accept you here. I mean, you can come, but you got to start all the way over as a freshman. And you just hear the tears, you hear the waterworks over here in this office next to me. And I'm over here shaking in my boots because I literally, what are the odds? I literally dropped out of the same college and I'm sitting here in this office right next to her 
And we're already beyond that point. Like, we're, I'm signing dotted lines and writing checks at this point, right? Just take all my money. Some of us are still paying off that college loan, right? So we're signing the dotted line over here, and all of a sudden, I'm, it, she, she looks up, and she's like, wait a minute, did you hear that? I'm like, oh, no, I didn't, I didn't, I, no, ma'am, I didn't hear a thing. I'm just focused on what we're doing right here. I'm locked in. And she's like, no, I, th- I think that the, the girl came from the same college that you're from, and, and uh, she, she didn't get in, so we're going to have to reevaluate everything. And so the meeting was stopped right there, cold turkey. We stopped the meeting. She's like, whoa, 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 we got to pump the brakes. I got to go back, research, got to do my homework and see if we're really allowed to accept you. Or do you need to start over? It's a big difference, a lot of money for one thing. And um, it, would be, it would mean starting over as a freshman as opposed to coming in as a senior, right? With just a semester and a half to go. And so I'll never forget um, those few days at home. I'm just so antsy. There's nothing I can do about it, but just wait on that email. And I kept refreshing that button, just hoping, praying that God's favor would shine down on me and that we would forget all about that little conversation in the next office over. And I'll never forget one day, refresh, there it is. The email's titled, it's from her. I open it and it literally went like this. You know, Jim, we have gone so far into your paperwork and we've already been over the credits. We've already been over the finances. We've already accepted your loans and this, that, and the other. We're just gonna sweep you under the rug and let you slide in. It would be more work for us to go back and undo what we've done. So welcome to Newberry College as a senior. Literally, you got to catch this. In the next room over, there were six letters stamped on her transcript, denied. Life-changing sentence, right? Life-changing six letters for her. And I'm over here, and my six letters were accept. Six letters made all the difference. Same circumstances, same scenario, same school. She got denied. By God's grace, I'm convinced, miracle, I was accepted, graduated with my journalism degree, and here I am, right, sharing the news of God's word. So it all works out in the end. But I want to share with you a little bit from Ephesians chapter 2 this morning about six letters that define everyone and then six letters that change everything. So let's stand. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and then we'll pray and we'll get into this. Read on the screens behind me. If you don't have it, follow along with us right here in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and you, there's our first six letters, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, which, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Here comes the next six, and I'm so thankful for these six letters, but... God. Can everybody say, but God with me? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up in him, with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you know the next two verses, say them out loud with me today. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray. God, have your way, have your will in this moment today. And we pray for that one that may be in the room this morning who doesn't know you as Savior. They've never accepted the free gift of salvation. That you have so divinely orchestrated all the events in their life for them to be in this room right here, right now, today. And that you're extending that offer of salvation to them right now. You're pleading with them. You're calling them. You're tugging on them to make that decision for the first time of trusting completely in your son to get them to heaven. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Can I just take, you may be seated. Can I just take a minute of your time? I want to preach a sermon entitled Six Letters. That's it. I want to show you six letters that define each and every one of us. And I want to show you the other six letters that change everything for us. So let's begin in chapters 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, and you, and I want you to imagine a big old long pause right after those first two words. You know, these verse references, the numbers weren't divinely inspired. So we, us, us men, put those there. So in order for us to really understand this conjunction and, we have, to, we have to bring chapter one with us to really know what Paul's talking about. And if you've been here the last three weeks, we know what chapter one is about. It's about the power. It's about the blessings and all the gifts that God brings with him. In fact, each person of the Trinity unloads certain blessings and gifts on us because of salvation. You got God the Father in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 1, and he's got a big old box of presents for us. And he says, listen, I've done so much for you. I blessed you in Christ and my love. You're faultless and blameless. You're adopted in all those gifts of God the Father. And then in verses 7 through 14, God the Son comes. And he's got a big old box. Imagine this box full of presents. He lays down on our front doorstep and he says, listen, not only did God the Father bring you some gifts, I brought you some gifts. You got sealed with the Holy Spirit. You got redeemed and justified. You got predestined. You were called. And all those gifts from God the Son. And then chapter one ends, not to be outdone, the Holy Spirit brings his big old box of gifts and he lays them down on our doorsteps. He's like, I got the power for you. I got that wonder-working power. I've got that grave-emptying power that you can have access to. It hasn't gone anywhere. It hasn't faded. The power hasn't changed. It's still there. You just got to battle back to the power. God brought so much. Jesus brought so much. The Holy Spirit contributed so much. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you, crickets, right? Just imagine a long, silent pause. We got nothing. We got nothing to offer. We contributed nothing to this salvation. We got gifts everywhere. We're surrounded by all these blessings and gifts because of salvation. And then we look up and we're, we feel cornered. We feel isolated because we, Paul's like, and you, and, and just imagine his, his quill on the papyrus. It just kind of stops right there because he's got nothing to say. He's got nothing to say about us. And so he kind of 
goes into a description of us, these six letters that define everyone. If you're here today, these six letters define you. And you, what? We were dead. We're dead men walking. We were dead in what? Our trespasses and our sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work of sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's not a good definition of and you. Those six letters I don't like so much, but they define every one of us. We're all in this boat together, and this boat is sinking, and we're all dead. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, you know what it's like to live so controlled, right, by the passions of the flesh. So Paul says, not only are you dead, but i got to describe your deadness a little bit. There's levels to it. This is a multi-layered deadness. He says, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're dominated, in fact. Verse 2 says, we're dominated by satanic principalities. Maybe that's your first time realizing that. But if you're not saved, if you're not God's, guess whose you are? You're the old devil's. And he's got a hold on you. His demons have a hold on you. You're under his satanic principalities kind of brings a whole new meaning to, oh, I'm, I'm just a good, normal, law-abiding, moral citizen. Well, you may be, but you're also controlled by the devil, and he wants you just where he's got you. So we're dominated by satanic principalities, and then we're dictated by our passions. We have no choice. We're literally dead zombie slaves. We have no choice but to follow the course of this world. We have no choice but to obey the devil. We have no choice but to let our passions and our bodies dictate everything we do, everything we think, everything we act on. We're dead zombie slaves. Any Walking Dead fans in the room? I used to watch that stuff back before I had kids, and then God convicted me, so I turned the channel to Bluey. But there was once a day when it was just me and Alyssa, no cares, no responsibilities, and we watched all that zombie stuff, right? And if you've ever watched The Walking Dead, um, you know when they come across those zombies, they are, they're controlled, they're under the influence, they're under the power of something else. They're dead, but they're walking, right? They're dead, but they're controlled somehow. And they're just dead zombie slaves, and that's how we are. In fact, I'll never forget, years ago now, if you're familiar with the characters on that show, Alyssa actually met Maggie at Bojangles in West Columbia. Yeah, I can't even believe it, but Maggie, that character, I think her name is Lauren Cohen, but she plays Maggie on The Walking Dead. Alyssa met her in Bojangles of all places. I don't know what she was doing. Her and her boyfriend were going to Myrtle Beach or something random, but yeah, so it's real. And she wasn't a zombie. She's one of the good guys, right? But the, the deadness that Paul is describing each and every one of us, those six letters and you that define all of us, we're dead zombie slaves. And a dead man can't do anything. And so you're thinking this morning, this, this is a little harsh language. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a moral person. I've kept God's laws and commandments. I show up to church when I'm supposed to. I don't break the law. I don't do drugs. I don't drink. I don't carry around. I'm a pretty good person. God says, 
no matter how you finish the and you sentence, it's a death sentence. No matter how good or moral or how much righteousness you think you can stack up, it's not going to impress God. Because God's standard, you have to understand, is perfection. It's holiness. He's righteous. He can't help it. God would not be God if he let sin into his presence. God would not be holy if he let you and us into heaven with our sin. All of us have sinned. We've all fallen short. So this trespasses and sins, it means to miss the mark. It means to fall short. You might be, you might be that good moral law-abiding citizen, but I got a question for you. Are you perfect? Can you say with every conviction in your heart that you're 100% righteous and blameless and holy? Because that's the level you got to stack it up for God to say, oh yeah, come on in. None of us are perfect. None of us meet the mark of God's perfection. We've all fallen short. And not only have we fallen short, we've fallen six foot under. We're dead. All of our goodness, all of our righteousness, God says they're filthy rags. I don't even see them. I don't like them. I don't want them. So before we move on, I want to ask you about those six letters. How would you finish that sentence? If this was your letter to write, and it was, and you, what? How do you finish your and you story? What is that sentence for you? And you, I was a resentful, judgmental church kid who was sexually confused. That's my and you. That was my death sentence. What about you? How would you finish and you? The anxiety-ridden, overwhelmed man with the hand life dealt you, turning to prescription pills just to cope. And you, the forgotten, silenced daughter who craves attention from anybody who will give it to her at any place at any time. You just crave that attention so much. Is, is that your and you story? And you, what about the successful businessman always chasing the almighty dollar, always chasing the promotion, always chasing the satisfaction that just seems to slip out of his grasp? And you, the abused teenager who turned to self-harm to just feel anything? And you, the really nice church guy but no one knew the thoughts that were rolling around in his mind under the surface. And you, no matter how you finish that sentence, it defines all of us, it's a death sentence. It's like six nails in the coffin, and you were dead. And what if the story ended like that? Have you ever taken time to think if God didn't do anything, if he had let nature run its course, let, left us on our own, do you know we would all end up in one place together and it's not heaven? If God had done nothing and said, I created them, but they went a little wacko, and I'm just going to let them feel the consequences of their actions, I'm going to let them come to the end of themselves, all of us would be in hell one day. That's what we deserve. Our and you, six letters define all of us. It's not good. It means death. No pulse. 
Dry bones, Ezekiel says. Flatline. A couple of nurses in the room, you guys know what flatline means. They're not there anymore. It's a shell, it's a body, right, Hannah? It's, the body's there, but soul and spirit have gone on. But this morning, I'm so glad we have an opportunity. There's an exchange available where we can take our six letters and change them instead of getting that stamp denied that we deserve, that God rightly and justly could stamp on all of us. He's got another six letters. We read them here, starting in verse four. You circle them, say them out loud with me, but God. Who is thankful this morning for another six letters that change everything? Six letters defined everyone. Six letters changed everything. I'm thankful for but God. In other words, he chose to do something about our situation. He chose to help us when we couldn't help ourselves. He chose to change the story. This means, but God means that he initiated under no obligation. But God means that he was moved to action when there was no guarantee of a counter reaction. You understand we had nothing to offer? You understand there was nothing that we could offer back to God for coming down to us? There was no counter reaction. He simply chose to intervene. He simply chose to enter time and space and be a savior to us. Let's read about it. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, it's not like we tried to clean ourselves up at this point. It's not like we had tried to climb out of our situation or, or get up out of our sins. No, it says while we were dead and our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. A few things about this. Rich in mercy. Why is his mercy so important? Well, because we were his enemies, the Bible says. In Colossians, in a passage just like this, it says, not only are you dead in your sin, but you're also God's enemies. You're, you're rebels against God. And so can you imagine this morning if the Ukrainian president said, we want to make peace. We're going to forgive all these Russians for invading our land. We're not only going to forgive you, we're going to make peace, and we're going to just let you take over. Can you imagine if they just bowed down and, and let the destruction happen? Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Mercy is God giving us that second chance, third chance, fourth chance. Who's on their fifth? Amen. He's so much more than a God of second chances. Rich in mercy means it's not just that he has to fraction it out so each one of us gets some. No, the, the language in the Bible means that he backs it up and he dumps us on it. It's a smothering, overwhelming amount of mercy. It's more than enough, his mercy. We deserve much worse. So not only is he rich in possession and power, like chapter one tells us about, chapter two comes up behind that possession and power and says, your God is also rich in mercy and you need every bit of it. You need every bit of the mercy he has to offer. By the way, it's a great love too. Great means immeasurable. It means incomprehensible. We can't really fathom it. We don't understand it. And we may not really until we get to heaven 
understand the kind of love that he loves us with. It's a great love. It can't be measured. It can't be understood. Because honestly, who else has done that for you? Who else has died for you? Who else has sacrificed their life so you could live? Anybody? And at that, it wasn't just anybody who sacrificed their life for your life. It was the King of kings and Lord of lords who did it. It was the one who stepped off of the throne of the world and said, I'll go to them. I'm, I am Jesus. I am God's one and only son, and I will go be the sacrifice. I will be nailed to a cross that I made on a hill that I formed to shed my blood in between two thieves who rightly deserved to be there. I did not. I was tempted like in every way like men, but without sin. So he measured up. He checked all the holiness boxes, righteousness, perfection. He measured up. So he was able to be that blood sin sacrifice for us. He went to the cross and died in our place. He was that substitution. Great love. And listen, it didn't even stop at the cross, but it also says he made us alive. While we were dead in sins, do you know what Jesus was doing? He was taking our sins. He died on the cross, and then it says he was buried in a tomb for three days. And there's even a verse in Psalms that indicates that he went to hell for us. And that's where he bound up our sin. So that when he came out of the grave, he didn't bring our sins with him. He left it in that old grave and says, I'm going to make you alive. I'm going to quicken you. I'm going to make you alive. I'm going to breathe life into those dry bones and make them come alive. Amen. We're made alive. God finds us. We don't find him. He breathes life into us while we were dead. Again, dead man can't do anything. Dead man can't save himself. Dead man can't get out of the tomb. Dead man can't get out of the grave. A dead man can't do anything. God found us. And see, that's what sets the gospel that we read about. It sets it apart from every other man-made religion or religious system because all of them teach, climb up to God, earn favor in God's sight, work your way into heaven. If you're just good enough, if you just muster up enough sacraments or enough good works or, or maybe present your baptism certificate at the pearly gates, or maybe you need to bring your church attendance with you to those pearly gates, or maybe you'd kind of need to bring a copy of the 10 commandments. You can show them all the ones that you met. And religion says, earn it, work it, try harder, do better, more. And God says, You'll never reach me that way. I've got to come to you. I've got to make a way. If this is going to happen, if this relationship is ever going to work, I've got to come to you. Because you can't make it. You won't ever achieve perfection. And that's my standard. It has to be. It has to be perfect. So I've got to come to you. We're made alive with him. God comes down to us. He makes us alive. We're resurrected with Christ. Did you see that? We're... verse. Verse 6, and raised up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we're not only resurrected with, with Christ, we're also given his spot at the table. We're brought into this glorious banquet hall, and we're ushered right up to the throne, and we're given Jesus' seat at the right hand of the Father. We're given his position of authority and power. Wow, I'm so grateful that there's another six letters that changes everything about my story. I'm so thankful this morning for a but God type of scenario that changes. Christ took upon the position of a servant 
to seat us. He was willing to vacate his throne. He was willing to stand while we sat. But why? Isn't that the question that that just circles your, your mind, even if you've been saved for a long time, or maybe you've come in here and, and you've heard about Jesus, but it's never been put quite this way to you. And, and you hear this miraculous story of how we couldn't reach God, so God reached down to us and died for us and shed his blood and was buried, rose again, offers us everything. Why? Why would a God do that? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages means it hadn't happened yet. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means? That means the whole point of this gospel message is so that God one day can show off to Jesus. He wants to show off the richness of his grace and mercy toward us to Jesus Christ. He wants to show his son, look at how loving and gracious and merciful I am that I would see these people on a collision course to hell and I would intervene and save them. And he wants to show us his kindness. He wants to show off his wonderful love. Isn't that amazing? I, I just cannot wait until that day when we're all together and we're all bowing the knee. We're all confessing him as Lord and God gets to stand up on his throne and point a little bit to his, well, it would be his right and say, look at these people. Look at these folks that have been made whole. Look at these folks who have been united with me because of Jesus Christ. And all we brought to offer is our broken mess, our sin, our shame, nothing. And then verse eight and nine, it tells us how we get saved. This is all wonderful and great, but how do I make it mine? How do I receive this gift? How do I get in on this? I want that seat at the, if the offer on the table this morning is a seat at that table with my name on it, I want in on that. How do I accept this invitation of salvation? And verse eight and nine tell us exactly how it happens. It says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. Grace, as opposed to mercy, is getting something you don't deserve. So mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's kind of like this. It's raining today. Undoubtedly, at some point later on today or tomorrow, my boys are going to want to go play outside. And they're going to go trampsing out in the wet mud and the red clay that you know we all got down here in South Carolina. And they're going to want to play under the deck and run around outside. And eventually, they're going to get hungry, and it's going to be snack time. And so you know what my boys are going to do without even thinking a thought? They're going to come right up on the deck with their muddy shoes, and then they're going to come up on the upper deck. That's right. We got two-tier at the Reese household. They can come up on the upper deck with their muddy clay shoes, and they're going to walk right in on that rug. And they're going to walk right in on the hardwood, and mom is going to be graciously standing there in the kitchen offering them a snack. Thank God we have a Tyneco, Matt. That's a floor vacuum mop thing, if you don't know. It literally saved our marriage. So, grace would be this gracious motherly figure of Alyssa, because y'all know I would not be there. I'll be, my blood pressure would be through the roof if Clay got all in the house. So it would be Alyssa, 
and she would be so gracious and they would come trampsing into the house and she would offer them a snack. Did they deserve that snack? Did they deserve to even be let in the house? No, that's grace. God says you have messed up. You got junk and dirt and mud and all kinds of muck all over you. And I'm, I'm allowing you by my grace to trampse right into my heaven and be seated at the table because of my son. Grace. He says this, salvation is by grace. In other words, you don't deserve it. And then he says it's through faith. Faith is believing what God said he'll do. So if he died on a cross and he rose from the grave and he said this was a free gift and all that I have to do is accept him, then that's what it is. Faith is believing that what God said he'll do. If he's promising me a home in heaven and eternal life, if I'll take him up at his word, then that's what I'm going to do. Faith. It's by grace through faith and not of yourselves. Hey, you can't earn it. You can't try to work for it. It's the gift of God. It's not a gift if you have to work for it. Nobody gets a gift at Christmas time and then has to work to keep that gift. I'm so glad that we have a salvation that's not only offered to us as a free gift, but God never once comes back and, and says, by the way, if you want to keep that gift of salvation, you better work for it. You got to work to keep it. He never once comes back at us and says, you better walk the straight and narrow, otherwise I'm going to take that gift right back. That's not salvation. It's a free gift that we cannot earn. We didn't do anything for it. We can't do anything to lose it. Amen? That's a good salvation. And then it's a free gift. It's not of works. No amount of trying will achieve salvation. We don't get to take any credit. It says that in verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. No one gets into heaven and says, look what I did, God. None of us will be saying when we get to those pearly gates, not a single one of us will be able to say, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross, but look at all this stuff I brought with me. I'm moving in. Nobody will get to say, well, God, thank you for Jesus, but don't you think I get a little credit because I stacked up all this good stuff and lived such a great life and helped so many people? None of us will have anything to say except thank you, Jesus, holy, holy, holy. And I can't wait for that day. So it's by grace, it's through faith, it's a gift of God, not of works. So what's left? If it's by grace, through faith, not of yourselves, a gift of God, then literally the only thing left between you and a seat at that table is accepting the invitation. That's it. That's all that left is take it. Take him at his word. Take the gift. Receive it by faith. And it's yours. Don't clean yourself up. You don't have to try to make yourself presentable. No, he gives you his righteous robes anyway. You're already seen righteous. No amount of good works is literally by grace, through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God. That's the kind of but God story that ends. And I don't know if you've had a but God story. Maybe you're still here and, and you're realizing maybe for the first time today that that you're still on the and you side. You've still been trying to work it, earn it, achieve. And this morning, you know, you can exchange that this morning for a but God story. So will you pray with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe that's you this morning and you know that today's your day. The Holy Spirit's been calling you. You felt his presence. You're ready to believe. You're ready to accept it. There's a beautiful story in 2 Samuel chapter 9 of 
David, King David and Mephibosheth. And David, King, the king is wanting to show kindness to anybody left of Saul's household, who, by the way, was his enemy, who tried to kill him, who tried to prevent David from ever becoming king. And he finds one distant relative of King Saul, who is Jonathan's son named Mephibosheth. He's crippled. He had nothing to show for. A lot of cripples in the Old Testament had no money. They had to beg to even get by. And so David orchestrates for this cripple, son of Jonathan, to be brought into the royal courts, into the palace, right up to the throne. And he looks at Mephibosheth, calls him by name, and says, don't you worry. I'm going to show kindness to you on behalf of Jonathan, your father. And not only that, King David says, I'm going to restore all the land that was your father's and your grandfather's, but you, you will have a seat at my table. You will eat every time we eat at the table with us, literally a seat next to the king. Can you imagine that? Can you find yourself in that story this morning? Imagine heaven. Imagine this ornate banquet hall, this beautiful, exquisite dining hall in heaven. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb. And all of heaven will be there. And if it's anything like the picture we have of the last supper with Jesus and his 12 apostles, you already know there's gonna be some filthy mouth, smelly fishermen there. You already know there'll be a couple murderers at the table. There'll be some misfits, some blue collar workers, professional gamblers. There'll be a prostitute, a liar. There'll be literal dead people raised back to life. There'll be weaklings. There'll be timid people, lepers, outcast, disease ridden bodies. You know the lepers, right? Thieves and you. And let's be honest, you'd probably just try to duck in through the back door unnoticed, definitely underdressed, most certainly unqualified. And you'd shuffle toward an open spot in the back, in the bench section, and you'd sit down there next to a Pharisee-looking guy and an eight-year-old leper girl. Dressed in white like everyone else, you'd hoped to blend in, but you can't help but feel sitting there so exposed, so seen. It's due to the brilliant radiance from the head of the table. There are three thrones, each for a person of the Godhead. There in regal attire sat God the Spirit on the left, powerful yet comforting, checking his pocket watch, antsy to get this thing started. In the middle, reclined God the Father, at ease, laughing, joking, carrying on, having a good time, taking in the moment. And on his right, God the Son's throne, majestic, ornate, but empty. His royal robes draped over the gold-encrusted arms of the throne. A server appears, 
from who knows where, dressed in plain clothes, checking names, checking seating arrangements, offering water or a kind word to each and every dinner guest. And then he got to me. He seemed to pause as if he had found the one he's looking for. Seconds turned into minutes, it seemed like, before he spoke. Mephibosheth, right? Yes, that's me. Stammering from the intense look in his eyes. You're not supposed to be here. Words like a knife cut through my paper-thin confidence. Oh, you're right, I probably got mixed up. The invitation was surely meant for someone else. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to inconvenience anyone. Mephibosheth, this time with a forceful hand on my shoulder as if to redirect me. You're not supposed to be here. Pointing to my place on the bench. Uh, you're right. I, I'm sorry. I misunderstood. I'll stand in the back. I don't mind standing. Let me take you to your seat. He interrupted, guiding me closer and closer to the front. As I walked by, each guest turned and looked at me with amazement. I was dazed. Surely this wasn't right. There must have been a mistake. As we approached the three thrones at the head of the table, he took my hand and helped me step up on the raised platform. You're supposed to be here. Have my seat. This is my place. The server was Jesus. His seat, mine. His royal robes placed on me. The signet ring put on my finger. Before I could even wonder how in the world I got to where I was, the meal was served, the commotion and laughter echoed through the celestial palace domes. I, Mephibosheth, was feasting with the king. I don't know your and you story, but I do know the but God one. And no matter how you got here this morning, there's an invitation on the table. There is a name card with your name written in the blood of Jesus Christ. It cannot be dulled. It cannot be washed away. It will never be replaced. It's your spot. It's your name. The price has been paid. The table has been set. The invitation has been sent. The only thing left between where you are now and a seat at the table feasting with the God of the universe is for you to accept so with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give you the opportunity to accept that invitation today. You can just say something like this. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's not a formula. You don't have to come forward. But in the posture of your heart, say something like this. God, I know I'm a sinner. I'm a dead man walking. I have a past that I'm not proud of. I've done things that have earned me separation from you forever. But thank you this morning for 
but God. Thank you for Jesus sacrificing himself in my place. Thank you that he rose again on the third day. I'm believing and trusting in him for salvation this morning. I want to accept the invitation. I want to say yes to Jesus. Thank you for that free gift. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for a home in heaven. Come into my life. Make me brand new. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you just prayed that prayer with me, I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm just going to ask you to lift up your hand. Just lift it up high so I can see it, so I can pray with you, for you, and celebrate. Amen. Thank you so much, Jesus. Anybody else? I see a hand in the front. I see your hand. Thank you so much. Listen, if, you, if you're a believer and you're saved, you don't have to accept Christ again. But if it's your first time, welcome to the family. Thank you for trusting your life to the hands of the Creator. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior, King. God, we praise you for the salvations that happened in this room today, both first service and now. We can't get over it. We never will. We never want to. And even for those of us who have been saved for a while, help today to be a poignant reminder of exactly what happened at the moment of salvation. We're so easy to forget. We're so easy to move on to the next thing that we forget that we were dead in our sins before you came along and made us alive in Jesus. Thank you for that salvation. Thank you for a place at the table. God, thank you for exchanging my six letters that was a death sentence and giving me a but God life sentence, the eternal sentence. I'm grateful today. I'm blessed in my salvation. Thank you that Jesus has been and will always be at the center of all of it. We just can't get over it, never will. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. something to sing about. Let's stand up together. Let's praise the Father one last time today together. Yeah.